clubhouse. This is New Orleans, Jimmy. Everything connects. Everybody connects. This is the easiest town in the world to send a message. The one thing you can't do is nothing. The city is waiting. What is Jimmy Baxter going to do? This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Welcome to Tales from Yaya's, the Your Honor podcast. Tonight we're talking about part four of Your Honor. It was written by Dave Matthews. I don't think the South African singer of the Dave Matthews band. (laughs) Yeah, probably not. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, in COVID times, maybe he's not having a lot of time to tour uh, or smoke weed. You know, so he's writing writing, uh, Your Honor. (laughs) A little bit of thriller. Crime drama stuff. And directed by Clark Johnson. Man, I mean, I, I said last week that episode three, the story really got moving fast paced. After after two episodes of kind of setup and establishing the story, last week it really kind of took off, right? And this yes. week, even more so. What'd you think, Caroline? It was exciting. I I think the amount of times I said out loud, like, oh my God. <laughs> it was a record for sure in this episode. There was a a whole lot happening in this episode. Two really awkward family dinners. You have Gina riding Jimmy, riding him and riding him. What is Jimmy Baxter going to do? The whole city is waiting, just needling him and and literally making him explode. Uh, And fuck Margot Martindale. Hey, love her. So thrilled that she joined the cast. She is one of my absolute favorites. Love her from Justified. She played Mags Bennett and she was like the head of this whole family. And she was a badass that and the second i saw her on screen i'm like oh my god she's gonna be a badass i cannot wait for this see i think of her in the americans she made the americans which i already loved made it better and i think that's the margot martindale effect she takes great shows and makes them even better she's quick she's witty she sees right through all the bullshit all the bullshit oh i'm so glad we added her to the mix because honestly we're gonna get right into kofi i assume here right at the start and you know with him being R.I.P. Kofi, I feel like I I was at a loss as to like, how would the story continue? What would possibly motivate us to push forward? Even Detective Nancy Costello, who we had pegged as the bulldog so far, had kind of been swallowing the nonsense pills that they've been giving Michael and Adam with all of their shifty inconsistencies. Still really wasn't calling them on their bullshit. No one's been calling them on their bullshit. Even Charlie, who called Michael a little bit on his bullshit, was more in like fix it mode than holding him accountable. And that's when you bring in the mother-in-law. She's going to call you on your bullshit. Senator Elizabeth Guthrie is taking none of your bullshit. And uh, yeah, I mean, she gives it right to Michael and begins to dismantle his story and not even realizing what she has stumbled upon just because she doesn't like this son-in-law, which I mean, the the lesson from this episode among many is don't fuck with mothers-in-law. I think don't fuck with any moms. Don't fuck with, with any mom that, you know, don't. Don't fuck with her. Yeah. I mean, I think she proved that right away. And Michael, Michael has met a foe. Michael has met someone that he cannot charm. He cannot sleep with. He cannot trade goodwill and years of good service for. 
she's having none of it. She knows a version of Michael Desiato that no one else seems to know, and she does not like what she sees. But, Caroline, well, we're going to get to her because that comes up with awkward family dinner. But right now we have to start with Kofi. Were you surprised that not only that he is dead, but that we didn't see what came after him confronting Carlo in the cell, that it opens literally with a body bag in being loaded into an ambulance? Well, I think that it's been consistent with the show and that I have said, you know, I am surprised at the at the lack of action that we actually see. And and you said to me in the last episode that very good crime bosses, very good people who do something wrong here, whatever you want to call them, people in jail, whatnot. Well, we don't see all that they do all the time, right? So I was leaning back on your words to be like, well, we don't get to see everything on the screen because the very best you don't see. It happens behind closed doors and whatnot. So I also wouldn't want to see Kofi getting that beating. So I was kind of okay because I have such a soft heart. Watching the episode right away, um, I'm a little surprised that we didn't get anything because that's the obvious thing is you see something. Even if you cut to the body laying on the floor, something. But to start with not even seeing Kofi, you just see the body bag. I maybe cocked my head a little bit. I was like, this is a surprise to me. And on top of the fact that I'm sad that we're not going to get any more of Kofi Jones. I think I think it was a good character. I think the actor was very good at portraying him. I wanted to learn more from him. Everything we talked about at the end of last episode that we were hoping Kofi would make it out of that predicament because we didn't want his story to be over. Again, they've been consistent with making Kofi not at the same level as other people in the story. Like we saw Rocco's final moments. Kofi, nope, you don't get that. In fact, in in the actual autopsy, you don't even get his name. You know, he's just JK, all of his numbers. Like all that did not, you know, uh, go over my head at all in terms of like just continuously making him less and less human. You know, his we weren't going to see his life be taken because we weren't supposed to pay attention to his life. The show is telling us that as far as the system is concerned, Kofi wasn't even worth having a name, let alone getting to witness his death. So just being reduced to a number, like he's Jean Valjean and like Les Mis, among all of the things that we've seen in the show so far, it's one of the most demoralizing, dehumanizing things that we've witnessed so far, and maybe has hammered home the differences in treatment of people in the show. For me, the reason why we don't see Carlo beating him up is so that when they put him on the table and then you get the overhead shot of his face, it yeah. has maximum impact. And it did. It, it made, Like, I sucked in my breath a little bit because Kofi was fucked up. I mean... Yeah, his jaw looked like it was, like, completely dislocated. Yeah, to die of blunt force trauma and brain swelling from a brain bleed, he was literally beat to death. Imagine that being able to go on in a prison in the dead of night, the screaming, the noise that must have come out of there. It was allowed to go on. And then you have the sheriff saying to Carlo and Jimmy, we're, we're going to overlook this. You look fine to me. Go back to Angola, serve out the rest of your sentence. This guy never existed. Kofi wasn't even worthy of existence. No one's going to come looking for him, or I should say no one important is going to come looking for him is their position. It's it's the Voltaire quote, right? To, To the living we owe respect, to the dead we owe only the truth. The sheriff says... He said Voltaire didn't live in New Orleans. I appreciated, though, that they bothered to give old, uh... Ray, the line that I can't have my prison taken over by the government. So this is why I have to do what I have to do. They've given every single character 
clear motivation for what they're doing. He's not just being a dick about Kofi. He can't have any murders in his prison. He can't have violence between inmates or else his prison's going to be taken out of his hands. So he's got his own motivations, lying for his own reasons. If Kofi was someone else, I think if Carlo was someone else, he may have had a different opinion. I, you think he would have willingly given up his presence for anyone? He wouldn't have been able to push it under a rug, sweep it under a rug so easily. That's probably true. I think he thinks he's going to be able to sweep this under the rug because of who Kofi is or isn't and because of who who Carlo is. And probably not appreciating Lee Delamere and where she may or may not be persuaded to do in the coming future. I wanted to focus on... His idea, though, that Voltaire never lived in New Orleans, the idea of this is New Orleans, because that comes up again later when Gina says it to Jimmy. This is the first time we've really had direct conversation about the fact that we are in New Orleans. It's they've not been hiding the fact they've talked about the lower ninth. They've not they've not hidden the fact that it's taking place in New Orleans, but they had yet to really make it a character. I feel like tonight's episode was the first time the show made the city a character in the series where it mattered. I'm curious if you picked up on that at all and. And this idea that New Orleans now becomes a part of the story. I absolutely did. And it, it made me start to think about other parts to the story that either were or were not there. Things like, you know, really highlighting the fact that we're in New Orleans made me feel like, why are we not hearing more accents from more people? And it doesn't necessarily have to be the judge and it doesn't necessarily have to be the senator. But why wouldn't the everyday, every single cop we deal with should have some sort of accent, honestly? Not just a Southern accent. There's really specific Creole, really specific. Cajun accents that I'm just not hearing from anyone. Also, there's a lot of phrases that people use in New Orleans. Uh, I'm in Houston. We're only five hours away. We have a lot of people that go back and forth between Louisiana and Houston because of the oil business. And we frequently have to know like certain terms like char is a term, S-H-A-R. It's like a play on Cherie, but it's like more casual than that. So it's not your love, but it's more like you're saying like, oh, my darlings, like welcome kind of thing. So someone might call you char. Like, but we have to know that like that happens in business meetings and stuff so like it's was interesting in bringing new orleans as a character it made me start to be like oh hang on <laughs> we better add some more <laughs> some more specific phrases here and we better get some accents up in here when you mentioned it to me we talked a little bit about this off mic before we began to record and i realized i hadn't really bumped on it because it's not something i'm living with if it was a New York story, I would very much be aware of the New York accents or a lack of New York, New York accents. I actually just watched a screener for a brand new show that has very heavy Long Island accents. I was very much aware of it the entire time I was watching it. I hadn't really thought about it until you brought it up, but then it did make me kind of wonder. I wonder why the show made that decision not to. I'm sure, I'm sure they could have cast Right. Even if the central core cast maybe weren't going to do accents, they could have cast extras or smaller parts that would have those accents. In all honesty, while the judge might not and the senator might not, although hilariously, <laughs> Bobby Jingle has an accent, like bring forward anyone from Louisiana and you're going to have some version of an accent. Now, like everywhere, oftentimes when you go through higher levels of school or maybe if your family like moves into town or something, which I kind of got the idea that maybe not, maybe the Desiados maybe didn't always live there. Robin probably did, but I don't know that Michael always did. So 
didn't really bother me that he didn't have one. But when you get into some of the other characters, I don't know why the the inmates would have had serious accents. And I don't think there was one that was like, you know, discernibly New Orleans. Franny uh, Latimer doesn't have one. Adam doesn't have one. His friend Wesley doesn't have one. Yeah. It's a very, like you said, it's a very specific kind of accent. So I Mm -hmm. wonder if the show perhaps didn't want to burden its viewers who it's are the not type used of to accent it. that you have to be careful with because i think that you can make it into a caricature real fast and it can sound like you're almost mocking because and, and there's distinctions there's creole there's cajun there's new orleans these are different accents these are right. different dialects there you wouldn't want to come off of course like you were you know in any way mocking it or not doing it authentically so i get yes. not wanting to have maybe your main cast even go there But, you know, like I said, I don't think you can really get away with having an entire prison population where no one has this accent. Come on. That's not that's not realistic. I love the accent in a lot of ways, and I can hear it just fine because there's this real like low kind of smoothness in a lot of ways. To a New Orleans accent, that's not Creole or Cajun. There, mm-hmm. There's a there's a slow drawl to it, which can be very kind of hypnotic. There's like a happiness to the language because there's this like kind of like passion kind of part to it. There's certain things that people say in New Orleans that like making groceries, that means you're going shopping for groceries. Save the groceries means putting away your groceries. Like there's phraseology that is really kind of, um, oh, it just paints a picture in a way. Like making groceries sounds like kind of like, like you could get that. You get what they mean, right? You're, but it's like, I wish there was more layered in. And maybe there will be because we got Lanyap in this one. We got some, I need some help with my shrimp here. So explain explain the Lanyap for people because I, I understood what he was talking about, what Little Mo was talking about in that scene from the context sure. clues. But the phrase itself went over my, or the words, not a phrase, the word went over my head. Sure. I mean, it's for me, I know it in the context of when you go out to eat at like a Cajun restaurant or Creole restaurant, especially down in French Quarter, you're likely to get extra dishes like on the table. Those are lanyaps. So you might have, they might bring out like extra sides or you might, they might bring out like soup. Even though you didn't order it, it's like, it's like this kind of a baker's dozen kind of feel like you order 12, but you get 13. That's a lanyap. And so in the, but in the context of what was going on with little Mo, there's also this sense of like a bonus or a little something extra. So he was giving that money to him. Like this is like basically money for Kofi's death. And this is like a bonus basically for your family. Like a death benefit, like a, like a streetwise, a street gang, like death benefit almost. And Mark Twain used it in his writing. I think that's where little Mo gives the do some reading. One thing that's kind of overlooked for people who might not really get it is that New Orleans is right on the Mississippi River. And and I do want to apologize to you because I don't actually know where he threw that phone. I looked more carefully at a map of exactly where the Lower Ninth is. The uh, Mississippi River is on one side. There's a canal that connects to Lake uh, Pontchartrain, which is up right north of that area. So you had said lake that he threw it in. And I said I had corrected you and said, no, it's probably the river. But... I don't know which way he drove. So if he headed north, he might have thrown it into Lake Pontchartrain. I don't know. But I think he probably threw it in the Mississippi. Being from somewhere that's not local to this story, 
Does it matter to you in terms of them sort of telling you the culture of the city? Do you feel at all like you're having to rely on the writing? Like there's things that Gina says that even I tried to go back and look up and kind of be like, you know, is New Orleans known for being like a gossipy town or a town where everyone knows everyone else's business? I don't actually know that. She was kind of implying that everyone's in everyone else's business. Now, that's very small town anywhere. And New Orleans is kind of a kind of a big, small town in that way. Like there's a lot of connection between families. A lot of people are interrelated and it's a place where people tend to stay. So you have a lot of people that have been there for a long time. Do you feel like you're relying on them? Like if they tell you the you know justice system there is corrupt or if they tell you they're a gossipy town and everyone knows each other's business, do you feel comfortable trusting that that is accurate or are you just cool with it for the storyline? I think I'm, I'm basically cool with it for the storyline. I, I have two feelings on this that I think are related and, and maybe they sound like they are opposites. So if you're going to pick a popular city that really exists in the world and you're going to shoot there and you're going to say the show is taking place there, I think there's two ways to go with it. One is you make it very obvious that you're shooting there. The If you're in L.A., you get lots of shots of the Hollywood sign. Palm trees, always palm trees. Always palm trees. You get lot of, <laughs> If you're in New York, you get lots of shots of like Times Square or Madison Square Garden or, or Central Park. Empire State Building, you got to have that. At the Empire State Building, right? As the uh, Wall Street, like everyone hangs out at Wall Street. Like no one goes to Wall Street. It's in the middle of fucking nowhere downtown. (laughs) But there's these places that you're you're going to show us and make it very clear, like this is a show happening in this location. The other way to do it, the more subtle way to do it, is kind of how your honor has been. Film on location there. Use the real streets. Go into the lower ninth. Give us the locations. Say to people who are from there, say, I know where that street is. I had an aunt or an uncle or a cousin that lives around the corner from there. I know where that is. But otherwise, it's not hitting you over the head. They're not running Mardi Gras floats down in the French Quarter in the show in between. Like, Michael's not taking meetings down during, you know, like on Fat Tuesday or something like that. Uh, He's not throwing, you know, getting beads or something like that. But the show is still undeniably there. I think if we're going to start talking about New Orleans, though, I think I want to have a feel for what is this place like. That's going to be give me some of that patois. Give me some of the, the, the secrets of the town. Is it a gossipy town? Is it a big, small town? It's like when a show, like I grew up in the outer boroughs of New York. I, I lived in New York. I lived in Manhattan, um, but I grew up in the outer boroughs uh, in Queens. Now, if a show was to take place in Flushing, Queens, I would very much know about it. I would understand it. I would see it. Other people watching it, it wouldn't necessarily pick up on the minutia, wouldn't pick up on the flavor or the vibe of that place because it's otherwise pretty nondescript. This episode seemed to be like an introduction to New Orleans, not only twice mentioning it by name, which I think is the first time it's really happened at all, but also you, you pointing out the little Mo slang that he talks to uh, Kofi's younger brother, the the mention of Charlie and the ninth war and the lower ninth and what he, the way it's not part of America now, but after he, if he's elected mayor, he's going to try and make it a part of, make it look like it's part of America. All of a sudden in in part four tonight, they decided like they want to bring new Orleans into the show. And like I said, make it a character of the show. I love that. I hope they stick with that. I want to know more about this place, but then you got to really <laughs> give it to us though. You can't just dangle yeah. it. You can't show us a little leg and then take it right back. I hope that they do. Uh, one of the things that I know I saw some comments, you and I are both in the Your Honor 
Showtime Facebook group, and it's great. There's a lot of different comments, and people come from different directions with different ideas. And I saw someone comment um, who lived up in New Jersey, being like, "Well, I just don't want to have to trust that this is what New Orleans is like." Specifically, having to do with the corrupt police department and stuff like that. I can just tell you this: I live here, and this is not something that we talk about. Like, we're not like, "Oh, don't you know about New Orleans?" It's not like that. However, when driving through Louisiana. I was always taught to have cash in my wallet and if pulled over by the police, be prepared and willing to give up your cash to never, ever be hauled in. And that is information given to me by my parents who are not in any way against Louisiana or, or against the police or anything like that. In fact, we have police officers in our family. However, it is a it is a real thing. My dad had to give over all the money in his wallet to not be hauled in front of a judge. So it's just one of those things that they will haul you in front of a judge for anything at any time because that's just the way the system works. So in the corrupt part of it all, that's just my life experience. I can just tell you that. Is that the way it is everywhere with every cop in every situation? I'm sure not. But I can just tell you my own family and the... Uh, way I was raised about it. So reading up a little bit on it, and I haven't done a deep dive on it, but just reading a little bit, it seems like the New Orleans specifically anyway, was known for having a very kind of corrupt, discriminatory, abusive police force, especially pre-Katrina. And the police force did not get any better with its with the the, the looks and the the corrections um, department w- with the treatment of prisoners and the dereliction of duty and the abandonment of offices during the Katrina chaos. Since then, though, the couple of articles I read did say that they have actually taken a lot of steps to reform the police department down there and, it, and the way it does business and actually trying to turn it into a, uh, the phrase I read a couple times was model police force um so it seems like something that they were aware of and have been trying to get the reins on now it's the same way people talk about new york they say it's you're gonna get mugged you're gonna get spit on you're gonna get punched everyone is rude that's actually not the case and it hasn't been the case in a long time in new york it used to be it it was a long earned reputation but once you have a reputation it is hard to change people's kind of views on them, the long-held views about them. So I don't know what it would take for New Orleans to not have this reputation anymore, but this seems to be at least very consistent with people's idea of what crime and punishment looks like in New Orleans. I always found it to be fascinating that in Louisiana, you can drink at 18 so long as you're with your parents. (laughs) And that's a law. Like, that's okay. Even though the federal law is 21. They only change the law to be 21 and, and coincide with the federal laws when they need federal money. And that always comes at one time when they have to fix the highway system. And so then they will change the law and go back to 21 and then go back to 18. It is like the most unusual situation. I loved when old Elizabeth, Senator Elizabeth Fuel, although I was writing her Senator grandma in my in my notes um when she says donuts and she talks about like you know there's rules but then there's there's those holes that discretionary area i kind of feel like louisiana lives in those holes her that whole scene with her reminded me of you so so much <laughs> tell me why I, it just it, the exact kind of schmoozing kind of defense advocate you know advocacy you would give for your kids or if, <laughs> if when you have grandkids that you would give I, I i heard you so much in her very soft-spoken but like i've got a switchblade in my weave kind of uh tone <laughs> about her 
Now, first of all, her and I would not have a switchblade in our weaves, but we are from both of us are from Texas. Uh, she's a fellow Texan. And all right, so, so she's got like a like she's got she's got like a six shooter in her purse or something. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Probably. Yeah. Probably <laughs> in her purse. There will be a hole in this donut, whether or not you go along with it. It will be. A I might shoot hole. the hole in the donut. <laughs> I think that that's very accurate. And, you know, another reason why I love that they brought on Margot is because she has that cachet. Like, you believe it. You believe the yeah. woman. Oh, I wouldn't a, fuck with her. Drives. I never saw the exterior of that car, but I know that car is a nice car. Oh, yeah. I, sure. You could just tell. Like, and you know she's got, like, a nice everything. There's just something about her that is just like, yep, I'm a good living, you know, but I also work hard and I'm educated and I don't mind standing up for myself and others. Let me switch the question back on you. How important is it if they're going to talk about the show being in New Orleans and they're going to bring up New Orleans? How important is it for you that you have a flavor for the people, the accents, the places, the sites? Well, for myself, I don't feel like I'm relying on the writing as heavily as other people who aren't from this area. So for me, I feel like, you know, there's parts to it that I think like anything, uh, you know, Senator Elizabeth brought it up when she was like, you know, is torture the right word you want to use? Like for any scenario, you know, you want to clarify. I'm not trying to cast some blanket statements, but I think that there were some things that were happening that we know are true. I know that the lower ninth ward is the lowest economic neighborhood in all of New Orleans. That's a fact. There's things that they have already layered in there that I absolutely believe. And there's parts like every show that with certain characters are going to be more evil than they really are or more corrupt than they really are. Or, you know, everybody's going to bring their own personality to the situation and could be good or bad. I'm actually kind of craving some other things. I'm really glad they brought up shrimp. That was really funny. And I really loved that everyone was eating with their hands. So right on. Like when Elizabeth doesn't go to shake Lee's hand necessarily, can she just hold her hands out? Like my hands are dirty. Of course I can't. I know you could read into that differently, but truly there's a lot of food that you eat. That's like that. They do this thing where they just kind of pour it out on the table even. And you just literally eat it. It's like chopped up like corn and potatoes and, and seafood and stuff. That's all in it. But it's just on the table and you just eat it with your hands. So I kind of loved those little moments. Like when they're trying to pass around the pictures and they're like, don't get it dirty because their hands are all messy. Well, when Charlie goes to, like, kiss Elizabeth on the head, she said, you know, get your sticky fingers off of me. But that's a great, like, layer in that would be true to, you know, what you might eat. If, if they stick with that, does mm -hmm. it matter less to you that they're not using the lingo? They're not using the Cajun? Because the point I was making before, a reason for not doing it may be because the, the fear of people, the, the My Cousin Vinny effect where you don't want to make the audience like Fred Gwynn, right, on the on the judges stand in My Cousin Vinny and, you know, mm -hmm. say, you know, palm me, boy, the two utes, what's a ute? Yeah. You know, you, you yeah. want to avoid yeah. that kind of thing. I, yeah. Is that a legitimate concern that you don't want to make the show inaccessible by people trying to getting lost in the accent so they miss the story? I mean, I think there's middle ground there, obviously. I think that you could definitely have, in any scenario, a professional or someone who is a public speaker always has less of an accent than, you know, people who are hanging out, just whatever. They're younger, they're students, they're whatever. They're always going to have more of an accent anywhere. I don't, you know, any judge is going to have a more refined way of speaking. So it didn't bother me really that it hadn't happened so far because I feel like the people we've mostly hung around have majority of the time been like professionals. Where it really struck me was when we were getting into more of the jail scenes. And then I was like, well, now this is an area where it would be full. I don't know. I wonder how people from New Orleans are feeling. If Does it take you out of the story or not? And, and so the, it does 
wasn't for me. The the fact that I wasn't hearing those accents wasn't really taking me out of the story because up until now, it didn't really matter to me that this was taking place in New Orleans. I guess I guess that is the point, which maybe this episode symbol symbolizes a change because now I have to think about the thing like Gina said, that it, this is New Orleans, everything is connected. I was like, well, what the fuck? I never had to worry yeah. about that before. This could have really been, up until this point, could have been any place with a couple of bridges and a river. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and a poor neighborhood. And, Values. you know, it didn't really matter. The scene with Little Mo and, and Kofi's brother, the vibe of that entire scene was pulled right out of South Central L.A. in Boys in the Hood. That changes if we're going to start talking about this is how we do in, in New Orleans, you know, then shit. Well, now I got to have a feel for the show if you're going to try and teach me about a place. Well, and I think it matters, too. If you're going to call upon things like architecture, where you're going to say, we have stoops on the front of our houses so that we can listen to what the neighbors are doing. If you're going to call upon specific things, even saying our dead are, are buried above ground. Now, of course, that's because sea level, guys. But, you know, to say things like, so that the dead can hear what's being said about them. Okay, you're like calling upon specifics about the city and the location yeah. mm-hmm. that you're now saying matter and are going to affect how the characters act. Yeah. yeah. Then it should affect how the characters act and talk. Well, I played on the stoop my entire life, but I never heard it characterized the way she was talking about it. So yeah, that whole scene with her on top, when, especially coming after the Voltaire didn't live, you know, in New Orleans line, all of a sudden my ears were fully perked, perked up. I have in my notes in a couple places, like, is this a character now? Is this something we need to know about? Because then the show needs to do more work in the next six episodes showing us, showing us why that matters. I really hope they do because 90% of the motivation be- behind Jimmy's actions really stem from Gina's line of the whole city is waiting to hear from Jimmy Baxter. That speaks to a very specific city, you know, culture then, you know, because it's implying everyone gives a shit what everyone else is doing. Okay, you need to, I hope that they play that out. Let's focus on Michael because everything else that's not Gina and Jimmy related in this episode, I think spins off of Michael in this episode. Michael seemed more upset at how casually Adam seemed to take the news about Kofi Jones dying than the actual news of Kofi Jones dying. Did you read that the same way in the in that scene in the kitchen? Again, we kind of said if Kofi goes away, then the story really doesn't have nearly as much legs anymore. So I think there's some amount of relief for Michael that it's like it's terrible it's awful that this happened but also loose ends are being tied up in a serious way nobody's out there to talk about this anymore except for the people in this house that was his first initial response and then once Adam was just sort of like repeating words back at him and stuff like that and wasn't giving him really any kind of solid response but just being like oh we don't have anything to do with it just kind of saying things back right like like there was like he was dead behind the eyes almost. Yeah, I think that that would make any parent go and follow up and be like, are you OK? Because <laughs> you seem weird. It's interesting that you said that for Michael, this actually ties up a lot of loose ends. We actually had this exact conversation at the end of episode three because we were talking about the chance of if Kofi is killed, what does it mean for the story? That being said, I was surprised at how difficult Michael seemed to be handling the day as it went on. He seemed increasingly uneasy with the decisions that he made and the consequences that bore out. Not only when he goes to see Charlie, which I want to talk about next, but then when he, when Lee calls him to go to Kofi's mother's house and break the news and deliver their stuff, 
I, he seems as ready to spill the beans or at least vomit as Adam has seemed the first three episodes. I agree. But I also think that it's just spinning out of his hands so quickly. Man, that dinner was like the culmination of everything has gone out of control. So I feel like it's like in the air when he gets the news about Kofi and he is sharing the news with Adam. He's like processing. It's not really real at that point. Yeah. And as the, I mean, God, having to deliver the box to Famale, his mom, and just deal with the actual tears and the wailing. I mean, that's so huge for him, I think, in terms of like starting to break him down. That scene is such an escalation because it it starts off very awkward because you have Lee and Michael, two people who don't belong in this house, having to witness this grief. But Mom is kind of keeping it together. She She's kind of in the cups about the conspiracy theory of, you know, the police did this to her son and the system did this to her son. And Desire is fam. Desire is taking care of us because Lee wants to put it on Desire or at least proposes that maybe Desire put the hit out on him. And Mom is sh- shutting this down like, no, 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 they're fam. They're taking care of us. They, you know, they kept all their promises. You know, it's the police. It's the police. It's the police. But then when her other son comes home and I mean, her grief goes from a numb three to to an 11. My heart was breaking. It made me sad. It made me twitchy. I like put my legs like up under the couch. I was I didn't know what to do with myself listening to her wail. Brian Cranston did a really good job of the body language of demonstrating how uh, obscene it is to be a witness to that kind of thing. The way that Famale had put him on a pedestal at the start of the conversation, calling him her angel and all these things when he's also her devil. You know, he's the one that took her son in a series of decisions. You can tell like how it would make your skin crawl if someone was just giving you all these accolades that you knew you hadn't been truthful on top of her coming to him in the courtroom hallway and and begging him to do something about this. Like she knew, she knew nothing good was going to come of this. And he screams at her that he can't do anything. You know, we, we kind of play that off that he'd have cover the anniversary of her passing being there and, and everything else. But that has to also be playing in his head here. Like she specifically asked you to intercede on behalf of Kofi and you didn't because you couldn't. And look what happened now. I think that's such an interesting little like black and white moment. I shouldn't say black and white. Such an interesting contrast to Charlie's one-liner of you asked me a favor and I didn't say no. If you play that out to between Famale and uh, Michael and it's like I asked you a favor and you did say no. It's it, There's just something about that that feels like, again, very Southern for me because I don't I have no idea what it's like up north for you guys. But for us down here, I mean, there is definitely a sense of watching out for your neighbor and having that sense of not only are you on the stoop to listen to your neighbor's business, but also you're going to end up lending a hand. That idea of I asked you a favor and you said no, that that is step back. Like, wait, what? <laughs> you would say no? It begs a larger question about Michael and this idea that Michael sees himself as a good man, as an honorable man, as a righteous man. Do honorable and righteous men always do good and righteous things or do sometime, do they get to take a day off? Because in this show, we saw Michael go to bat for her and her family. He took down a lying cop from the judge's bench to keep her from going to jail for up to five years, from snatching her away from her family. So he gets a karma mark, right, for that. And then the next day is 
turning the cheek and refusing to help her. Do you get a day off if you're a good and honorable man or, you know, or does karma round out there? Is he even because he did a good thing the day before and then didn't do a good thing or, you know, did a bad thing? I mean, I don't feel he feels he's taking a day off. He's he's not making bad choices or making choices out of a place of ignorance or or disregard for what it's going to do to other people. He's aware he's taking a calculated risk between his own family and other people's families. I love that you said that because I think that plays right into that conversation with Charlie. Kofi Jones's blood is on several people's hands, but it is most squarely on Michael Desiato's hands. His actions are directly responsible for Kofi now being dead. I think it is incredibly hubristic of Michael to come into Charlie's shop and start asking and start second guessing what his friend did to make a problem go away that Michael created, that Michael took upon himself to do. I was taken aback, and I got to tell you, kind of didn't like Michael after that entire scene with Charlie. The entire idea of second guessing, you know, know, this wasn't us. Tell me this wasn't us. I can't live with this. This is on my conscience kind of thing. You know, the fuck? You don't get to say that now, brother. Like, you did this. You don't get to, you know, roll the dice and then say, I didn't mean for that to happen. I mean, yeah, it was a calculated risk that he took and he lost in terms of Kofi. There's parts to it where he won because the the fingers are not pointing at Adam at this time. But he thought he could play enough game moves there that he could get Kofi out using Lee and keep on going. You know, we talked about this, you know, everything is a little short-sighted in what he does because he only can really get you to the next game space, right? But he can't see the longer game, partially because this is so complicated. How can he possibly figure out what to do? Short of putting Kofi then in like witness relocation or his own self in witness relocation or something. Like, I don't know how you get out of this situation because it is just a snowball i'm taking a more negative take on him after this episode well haven't you ever been in a situation where you know you ask someone to do something and they do it but they don't do it exactly the way you thought they were going to do it and so you come back to them and you're like well but it's just not the way that i thought it was going to happen and it's not exactly like you're looking a gift horse in the mouth but you are kind of like going back and questioning how they did it. And once you get called on it, like Charlie does, and says like, hey, man, all I did was not say no when you asked me a favor, you know, they go right back in their place. But I think that there's a natural part that when a plan doesn't go exactly right, that you go back and start questioning each step. And Charlie was just the first step. Here's the problem with that, though. I think all of what you're saying is true. I think if the stakes were lower, if we're talking about... Uh, a fender bender. I need you to cover up a fender bender. I I need you to, uh, my son stole something from a store. I need you to make it right. Michael has the right to be more incredulous, but he thought he was smarter than the system. He thought he was smarter than everyone else in the room. And actually all he able was able to do was create a spider web of consequences that he hasn't taken any accountability for none. That's why I say the blood is on his hands. He didn't tell Charlie, I need you to get the car gone now, burn it, destroy it, crunch it, make it gone in the next hour. It's it's a live or die emergency. Even without saying, like, my son hit someone, I need you to get the evidence gone. He could have made it more pressing than he did, but he didn't. He did it. And so Charlie did what he did. He did his friend a favor, but did it with normal course and speed. Michael 
could have come up with a better story of why he was calling Nancy, but he didn't. That's why Kofi gets picked up. Michael could have come up with a better solution for what to do with Lee and why he was reaching out to her, but he didn't. And he put her, he put Lee on Kofi Simp because he thought he was fixing problem 1A and now is going to end up creating problem 6, 7, and 8 from his decisions because he thinks he's smarter than the system, but isn't actually smarter than the system, or at least isn't thinking through the problems as much as he wants. He's like a, a guy who thinks he's a master tactician, but is really just okay at it. That's the problem. So I don't think that he doesn't think that the blood's on his hands. I think he's fully aware that the blood is on Adam's hands and now essentially his hands. However, he has spoken straight to the audience through Adam and saying, I can't think about it that way because I can't move forward if I look at it like Adam and I are the bad guys. It's not that he doesn't know or doesn't accept on some level that yes, yes, they are to blame, both of them by this point. But at the same time, in order for him to be able to continue the lies and do everything, they had that moment, you know, where Adam's like, fine, tell me the truth, just say it one time. And he lists off the lie and says, no, this is what happened. This is this is my truth. Then, you know, it makes sense. And 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 again, sure, like, I don't but- think it's unusual to go back and, and retrace your steps and be like and, and kind of be um, angry with people during the steps until the person says like, hey, fuck off. And then you're like, no, you're right. It was me who made that choice. Well, that, that's my issue. My issue is I totally get he has to think about it one way. Adam is kind of saying what I'm saying, like he wants him to, to take some accountability for the thing that they have now together done. Can I just say I was so scared he was going to say the truth and then grandma was going to be standing on the steps. When I said absolutely it out loud. thought Nancy or grandma, Senator grandma was going to be on the steps. I for totally sure. thought grandma for sure. because it didn't, it wouldn't make sense for anyone else to, to run after them except for another family member. So I thought surely he's going to state the truth in like, like, fine, I'll say it one time for you and then I'm never saying it again. And he just says right. it. And then you turn around and grandma's face is like, Bruh! And I was like, no. And I love the fact that for him, it has to be the truth. I actually really like the fact that Adam, I mean, it bit him in the ass later on, but I like that Adam was with the program and recited the new anniversary day events instead of what really happens like that who thought adam would be so with it when put on the carpet to recite what happened my issue is you you have to think about it a certain way that's the only way you can move forward but then you can't go to charlie and start second guessing it and all this we nonsense yeah but you know that he felt like shit that he did that i don't know that he felt like yeah, that's why he invited him to dinner. That's why Charlie accepted. Well, sure, sure. Yes. That and was an apology. Yes, I get it. He's he's rubbing his head. He's saying, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. And then finally, he's like, you know what? I need help cleaning up these shrimp out of my fridge. And Charlie says, bring it on in. And they hug. That is like, I'm sorry I came to your, to your barbershop and had a mental breakdown. <laughs> I fucked up. I'm saying it's an annoying character trait. I don't like that. I don't because it's not the first time that we're seeing Michael do this. In some ways, you know, Michael is almost a bigger liability for me in this story than Adam is because he he seems to want his cake and eat it, too. You either have to be all in for what you did and turn your conscience off or or not. This this wishy-washy, uh, you know, you have to let me protect you. I'm the father. I what I go, uh, what I say goes doesn't jive with the other side. There is no other side. You have to be that way. What's the wishy-washy? No, if you're wishy-washy, then you go back and forth. 
what's the other side that he's being? Well, eventually you piss someone off and someone's going to write you out. No, no, but what's the other side? Like, if he's switching sides, how has he switched to another side? He's maintaining the one side the whole time. I mean, like, that you that you can't lose your cool with Charlie because that's the second time now he's gotten all huffy with Charlie. And Charlie, you know, again, did him a favor without all the facts. Who knows if Charlie helps him? Or maybe Charlie helps him in a better way and makes sure the car gets gone and destroyed in a more solid way. Michael only gave a little bit of the information and now is he sold a defective car and then is pissed off that the $50 bill was counterfeit. Like that is annoying to me. That's going to make me dislike this character. If he continues that way, if you're going to break bad and you're going to be all Walter white, you're going to be the danger that knocks be that way. I liked Walter white because once he went bad, he never worried about the fact that he wasn't a good guy. Yeah. But that's later seasons. That wasn't in the first two days. We're only in the first two days. He's not there yet. You know, he's not a hardened criminal. He's not there yet. So I he's guess. still in that part where it's it's still going to dig at him and he's still going to go and flip out because he is ultimately a good person who got in over his head. You know, I think we're going to see him break a bunch of times where starting at the end of his bed, crying to yelling at his best friend. You're going to yell at your best friend. It's the only place you can yell because you got to keep up the front with like everybody else. I guess it annoyed me. It really turned. I, I didn't. I, it, <laughs> hey, it annoyed I me. have a it question for off. you, though, that this made me so like, wow, that was fast and like a quick way to just like finish that out. The car being taken to the scrapyard mm -hmm. was like a blip on the screen. It almost made me be like, did I just see that? It was weird, too, because they, they cut it up into pieces like we were watching the car's journey. It's yes. on the tow truck. It's being yeah. then the next time we cut to it, it's being lifted up and then it's being put in the in the smasher. I thought that was very weird, too. But it was clipped so fast. It was almost like subliminal messaging. For me. I was like, what did I just see that? I took that more as like a metaphor for how it was actually being destroyed probably faster than it should be. The fact that everyone is moving on now. Kofi Jones yeah. is dead. Rocco is dead. He's in the ground. Kofi Jones is in a body bag. The car can be destroyed now. Like everyone mm -hmm. is like, time to go home. Let's pack it up. Let's not speak and of this that's again. why you got to bring in Senator Grandma. Yeah, I mean, she, we, talked about, we talked about what does the story become? How does this unravel for six more episodes if if Kofi dies? So, and we, we were thinking maybe Lee's going to be the one to try and blow it up. And she certainly seems like she's got a burr in her butt about it. She's not going to let Kofi Jones's memory go like that. But Senator Grandma, though, is coming at it from another angle. Oh, my gosh. The idea that she thought that maybe Nancy could be the key to Robin's death. And she was like, do you have a phone number? And does she like shrimp? <laughs> <laughs> Senator Grimma, you are the bomb. Like, I, I get this and I love this angle because she is going to be coming at it tenaciously wanting to solve a problem for her own child, wanting to solve her own child's murder. And in that, she is very likely to be the linchpin in unraveling her grandkids whole situation. And that is fascinating. Before we get there, though, there was one more Charlie Michael thing I wanted to talk to you about. Last week, Charlie was advising Michael to that he better be fucking Lee so he can control her. Yeah. He sees that Michael went and did that 
Um, mm-hmm. But then advises him, looking at the look on Michael's face and seeing how Michael is already kind of breaking down at the start of this scene, basically says, you know, don't get stupid by falling in love with her. And then Michael gets all bristly about that. Like, what do you mean? What do you mean? You know, that that she's dangerous. And Charlie is seeing that I, I, I really like Charlie in this episode. I really like Charlie's speaking truth to power aspect of him. Like, he doesn't he doesn't throw platitudes at Michael to make him feel better. I think Charlie is the one throwing the cold water at him and Sla- you know he's he's sharing in uh he's a great best friend yeah he's like snap out of it you know he's yeah. you know he tells you what you need to hear when you need to hear it and, and it's an important thing because the same way that franny was is a is a kryptonite to adam confessing his sins which he did you can see exactly where charlie's coming from you know you start getting pillow talk she you know you start loving her that's not going to be like some woman not invested in this thing that you maybe confess to Lee Delamere is invested. If you go and spill your beans, that's going to have consequences that far outpace your burgeoning love. <laughs> Were you surprised that Lee shows up at their house and then stays for the awkward family dinner? The look on her face when she's introduced to Grandma, Senator Grandma, as the mother-in-law. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. And she's in there her in her sweats and her oh, little, off like, the shirt. shoulder. She keeps trying to put the, put the shirt back on her shoulder so you don't see her bra strap, like trying to look more put together. Yeah, I loved all of it. I want to back up like one scene on those two, though. I didn't know exactly what was going to happen with Michael and Lee when, you know, she's kind of saying, like, give me a chance to give you a chance, all that. And he's all, I have to put my son first. I didn't know where this conversation was going. And I was with Lee like, okay, so this isn't going to happen. And then she's all like, he says, you make me happy. And that's good for Adam. Oh, look at you. Like, that was excellent. What do you think? You're, You're a dad in the world. What did you think of that rationale and how he kind of played that? You know, I thought it was an interesting conversation. It didn't go the way I thought it was going to go either, because the way he approached it was kind of like he backed into it, tying Adam's happiness to his happiness with being with her. No, I I don't know what the situation is. I mean, Adam has already filled in his mother figure, right? Isn't that what we're saying? That the reason he's with Franny. So I I don't know. and, And which Michael doesn't know about. Obviously, we learned last week. I don't know if that logic follows. I would like to think my son wants me to be happy. And I think that's the better sell is that you make me happy. Adam would want me to be happy. So ergo, you know, we should be together because you do the thing that my son wants me to be. And I, and I think my son would say that to me. You know, ultimately, we've I've been divorced from his mother for long enough. I think the conversation it would be or at least when he's a little bit older would be, you know, dad, I get it. Like, I want you to be happy. Like, I'm not here all the time. I want you to have someone that loves you and takes care of you and makes you happy. That makes me happy. I think that's the better sell for Michael and Lee. But you know what? She says, come to bed. And so <gasps> that I guess, was so weird. I guess the convert. I mean, it's the middle of the day. I mean, I want that's life. what I said. I They're said, it's the middle, in the middle of the day. Of the day. <laughs> I said the same thing because, OK, maybe you get away with that if it is the nighttime. And you guys have been drinking and it's like, OK, you can't drive home tonight. Just come to bed kind of thing. Right. OK. OK. Middle of the day. Come to bed. You just said, like, fuck me. Whoa, Lee, you were. Yeah. That was like wildly bold. I did not see that coming. No. And it's I, funny that you said it's the middle of the day. That's the first thing I yelled. I was like, oh, Lee, well, it's the middle of the day. Well, because then you <laughs> then you cut to you cut to Adam, who we were just talking about, uh, before yeah. your bed your midday bedroom sex, your afternoon delight, uh beating up his friend over making a comment about mm. a dick pic with the teacher. Dude and- though, come on. What if you were in that sitch? What if you were in that sitch and inadvertently your best pal totally just like basically said he wanted to like fuck your girl? Uh. Well, here's the thing, though. 
didn't Wesley make a comment about the, about the teacher about Franny having good tits already? He's made some other. He's made some oh, kind I'm of sexual. Sure. He's made some kind of sexual. Since we've been in the show, I feel like he's already made some kind of sexual innuendo about Not like Franny. previously when you hung out with Wesley by yourself. Yes. <laughs> no, you're totally right. You know, Adam is still at his breaking point, even though he handled, he seemingly handled the Kofi Jones news well, he's not handling it well. He's handling none of this well. And he has that whole conversation with Franny right before they've got the hallway conversation going on. No, Adams assumes that Franny thinks he's worried about her getting in trouble, that that's what they're talking about instead of Adam killing someone. Which I like the way that they worded that when he when he was like, so you think I blabbed about this to you. You'll think I blabbed. I will blab about our situation to other people. Right. That was just the right way to explain it to the audience. It absolutely was. And I mean, she kind of denies it, but also, I mean, she doesn't deny it either. Mm-mm, um, mm-hmm. And then she, she ends it with, you know, there are some truths that are worth lying for. That's their relationship in a nutshell. You know, we can't be open about this, but what we have is real, so it's okay to lie about it. What does the grandma senator call it at the end of the episode? Well-motivated lies. Yes. That gives a reason as to why Adam lied to grandma senator about what they did on the anniversary. It was for her feelings, and she scoffs at him. She scoffs at him in only the way Margot Martindale can and says, Mm -hmm. well-motivated lying, is that really what you're coming at me with here? Is that which something to be proud of? That's essentially the same line that Franny gives Adam. We're lying for the greater good. After Mm -hmm. this conversation, and especially after him blowing up at Wesley and beating the snot out of him getting himself suspended from school— Should Franny be worried about Adam blabbing? Probably, yeah, because he seems very unstable. And so, yeah, I think that if you're in a situation with someone else and you have some sort of secret like that and then you see them act in any type of way that seems unstable and like their mouths can't seem to stay shut and they can't keep control of their emotions. Yeah, I think it's natural and necessary for you to like tighten up and be like, what the frig? I I was actually surprised that within that conversation, she reassured him that they were okay, that she still wanted to be in the relationship. I kind of thought it would be left a little bit more dangly, like quit acting like this, you know, stop having this conversation here seemed probably like a more reasonable ending to that than really going right to some truths are worth lying about. I agree, though, I think either whether she really meant it that she still wants to be with him or is just doing quick calculations on her feet, the absolute right thing to say, if you become, if you've become worried about his mental stability, you have to say you're still fully committed yes, because anything less than that is going to make him spiral. He's going to wig right then, right there, right then, right. You're not going to get a, a semi cold. Thank you, Mrs. Latimer. As the class mm-hmm. is full again, it's going to be like, you can't suck my dick anymore. As he storms no. out of the class or something like that. Jeez. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's the worry. <laughs> that's the worry. He's like, that's um, the last time I munch on your carpet. Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you don't get to see my cute tushy in the morning anymore, oh, lady. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, anyway, that's that's gross. It's an illegal thing and it's disgusting and we don't advocate it. <laughs> we do not. Oh, I want to go back to Lee for a second. Uh, Lee has a weird episode in this episode. Uh, to say, I mean, the the, sh- the off-the-shoulder sweatpants look because she thinks she's just coming to her new boyfriend's house and finds his entire family, dead wife's mother-in-law, cop, <laughs> detective. She's full of oxytocin, Mike. 
Oh yeah, that's true. That's she's true. coming in full of oxytocin, and so she's all she's glowing. Please, old Margot knows what's up. Senator oh, Grandma smelted on her. <laughs> it's yeah, very much like when when uh, Sophia walks by smell. and goes, "No, Sophia walks by and goes." You had sex, <laughs> like to Blanche, like because right. it's like just like one of those things. Like you can tell that, that whole dinner scene is a great scene. But Senator Grandma just sitting at the head of the table, just spitting venom and and sass everywhere. Say, I love how Senator Grandma was like layering in the backstory of, oh yeah, you're the intern. Like clearly, Robin had talked to her mom about the fact that Michael has this intern. Like, there was more there. And you could see how stony Michael's face got. And he was just, like, looking at, at you know, Senator Grandma, like, don't you dare get into this. But you could tell that there might have been some true, like, concerns back in the day about Lee. I took his look as she was bringing up something that was well litigated between him and Robin. That, oh, yeah. That yeah, the, yeah, yeah. That we've been assuming marital bliss here uh, you know, she's been gone a year. And again, she's only been gone a year. And I know, he is I know. boning his former protege a year in. And now, and listen, they're so comfortable with one another that all she has to say is come to bed. Like yeah. they didn't have like this romance, you know, right. like, I mean, it went right there. Listen, mentor mentee relationships, they often become, they're very intense. You get to know someone very well. You know, the line becomes very thin. That's not to say that everyone crosses a line, not to say maybe the majority of them cross a line, but you see where the idea that a line gets crossed or blurred or feelings are developed. It's a power dynamic. There's a lot of stuff going on there. So the fact that these two have fallen into each other's arms so easily yeah, I took his look when Grandma brings up, you're the intern. I know who you are. Mm-hmm. The, the, the like, intern. The intern. You mm-hmm. know, capital T, capital I. I yep. know all about you. Michael's look to her is, don't bring up what me and my wife used to argue about for whatever reason. But cool that in one comment, we got all that. I want to tie all of that. You're calling it oxytocin, and I'm sure that's some of it too, but kind of like Loopy. She was she was not prepared to step into that lion's den uh, by well, any way. I don't way. think any of us would be, though. Seriously? True. The dead wife's mom? I mean, who was expecting the that? The intense young police detective who has eyes that are as intense as any human being I have ever seen in my entire life. I don't think Nancy comes into play so hardcore. I think it's mom-in-law. I mean, this is she's like having to do with Adam too. Like she tries to weekly be like, "Oh, show me your project, Adam." <laughs> like, right. Oh. I'm not. I'm not going to hold your dad's hand here because I am feeling very uncomfortable. So tell me what you want to do with your life. Yeah, it's like trying to put attention on him and, and like be like getting his good graces. I want to go all the way back to the beginning when Lee is finding out about what possibly happened to Kofi. And she asks Senate, uh, okay. Sheriff Ray Royce if Kofi had been put on suicide watch. And Ray looks at her and says, oh, yeah, you and the suicide. Mm-hmm. He, yeah. he, he says something about her and suicide. And she gets all glowery and says, you're going to go there with me. You're going to talk about that with me kind of thing. Yeah. Is this related to the thing from her past? Oh, yeah. We're not supposed to know about that she hasn't told about that Michael is that she was upset. Michael would ask her to represent Kofi. Uh, oh, yeah. Th- that whole thing. What? Yes. What is in Lee's past? Did she maybe try to kill herself because a love affair with Michael went poorly? I think that someone else within the system had the same issue. Do you think so? You think it's her? 
surely all these other people wouldn't know. You think Ray Ray is privy to her suicide motivations? It's a small town, New Orleans. Everything's it's connected. Not that small, is it? I don't know. I don't know. Lee doesn't live in the area anymore, so I mean, she did take off for some reason. Maybe something really did go that badly that she left the area. Ever since she says that line to Michael in the second episode. I have been thinking that something happened to her, not to a client, not to... Uh, I just thought it was a family member. Not to a family. I It, it seemed very personal to me. And then that line uh, that he brings up, I don't know. There's some. There's something about her. There's some, there's some instability in her past that is going to come out. Because again, now we've had two clues about it. And now she's been put in the viper pit of the family dinner. Uh, I think Lee's Lee's fortitude is going to be tested on top of her digging into Kofi's case a little bit more. I think that's absolutely true. And I mean, and as dangerous as love is, as Charlie explains for Michael, I mean, it's also going to make Lee not be able to do her job the way that she would want to do it. You know, she's going to be now distracted and sidetracked with all these other things with Michael as well. So, you know, this this is a much more difficult situation for Lee now. Are you surprised Adam has continued to stalk Fia Baxter uh, to the point where he eventually goes to position himself to run into her in this episode? We saw the beginning of this in episode two when he's on there on her Facebook page when Mm -hmm. the cop brings home uh, Michael and he, you know, erases his search history and stuff. But he's still stalking her. He's still looking it up on following her on his phone. Did that surprise you? Did it surprise you that he took it so far as to meet her tonight or run into her? I was not surprised that he went to Rocco's candlelight vigil because he just seems like he has to have some amount of witness to this entire situation. I felt like major undoing moments um, when he has that vape moment and she says, sorry, it felt very much like, and only if you watch the undoing, I'm not giving any backstory on this. What, when one boy bumps into the other boy and says, sorry, and there's that, like the most unlikely two staring into each other's eyes there for a moment. It had like such a vibe there that I think that he's obviously looking for trouble. Like it would not shock me if him and Fia start date, like dating because he can't help himself. You know, I had the same feeling. That's where I'm going with this. He feels like this connection, this bond to her almost to the point where I got a distinct impression like he's going to try and begin dating her. Yeah, as part of of his penance, which is going to have its own thing. Because remember, Franny, okay, Franny is a teacher. She is an authority figure over him. But also, you don't want to piss off or make a woman scorn, especially not one who you have told you killed someone with. So (laughs) there's I mean, Adam is is possibly about to make his own series of bad decisions and, and consequences that Michael certainly won't be able to fix. All I could think of when it comes to so many different people between like the idea of, well, Michael doesn't want to piss off Charlie and, you know, because that could really cause a problem or Adam doesn't want to piss off Franny. All I can think of in every one of those is mutual destruction. Like no one gets to tell on someone else without implicating themselves. So I don't really think anyone's truly in danger of the other person squealing, no matter how bad the relationship falls apart. What do you think it means that grandma senator has already begun to dissect the lie that they have established for themselves that they did not go 
to her grave on the day of. Beyond the obvious that Grandma knows that Michael has Adam, that Adam is lying either because Michael has asked him to lie or because he's lying for some other reason. Grandma knows that they didn't go see her. They know that that alibi is bullshit. What does that mean, do you think? Well, I think she's going to be the one that's pulling on the the loose string and unraveling their their sweater, if you will. She is going to think she's doing it for justice for Robin, that somehow she's just revealing this this shitty husband, which it does make him look so shitty when he's like, oh, yeah, we just didn't mark the day, which couldn't be further from the truth. You know, both of them are, are in complete heartache over Robin's anniversary day. But to have to use that, to have to say that as the lie for the reason why she didn't see flowers and cards and stuff on the real day. You know, I, I think that her anger towards him and thinking that he's just moved on and that no one no one is treating her daughter like the human that she was on this earth. I think that that is going to be a huge motivator for her to just steamroll and, and really just pull at every little loose string. The obvious thing is that she is going to be the one that pulls the string that undoes their entire story in a legal sense, in a killed Rocco Baxter sense. I wonder if it's going to get to that or if it will just be isolated to my son-in-law is a piece of shit and is a bad influence on my grandson so much so that my grandson doesn't even call him when he gets in trouble at school because he's you know he's doing things like maybe boning the intern when that's all going down or you know, does she does it contain to just Senator Grandma fueling all the negative feelings that she clearly already has for Michael, some of which may be justified, some of which maybe not? Or does it is it going to lead to a uh, larger can of worms? I think you're dead on the conduit into something larger is if Nancy and Senator Grandma start actually comparing notes. Which they're going to. I. It has to. They have to. Like, that has to be how the story moves forward, right? Right. Well, it has to be. And you could see where Senator Grandma, in wanting to besmirch Michael, will maybe mention the fact that they didn't do X, Y, and Z, which Michael and Adam have maybe now told Nancy that they did do, in fact, X, Y, and Z. And that's going to make her start to question. Yeah, Grandma is the one to bust their alibi. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how exactly that information gets spread on to Nancy. A couple of things that I just want to point out before we leave Senator Grandma and Lee from that dinner. Well, one thing that we haven't brought up is Charlie. What a little pot stirrer. So, yeah, maybe he accepted Michael's hug and said, you know, hug it out, bitch, and, and you know, whatever. But he knows Viper Grandma is sitting at the dinner table. He knows mm -hmm. Nancy is sitting at the dinner table. He knows Adam is sitting at the dinner table. But he says to Lee, who has the smell of sex on her, yeah, come on in. He's the one yeah. who invites her in, not Michael. Michael is going to be like, this is where you, you don't get any farther than the porch tonight. And and Charlie's all like, nah, come on in, girl. You know? Yeah, but you know why? Because of everything that they told us about New Orleans. If you're going to go with what they told us, then you don't do business on the front stoop because everybody's listening in, watching. So you get in the house and close the door is what Charlie was doing. So she walks in and she, you know, all of a sudden becomes very self-conscious of what she's wearing. And she says, I didn't mean to interrupt. And what does grandma senator say? And yet you did. And yet, <laughs> and yet here we are. <laughs> yep. Yep. I love grandma senator. Oh, my yeah. God. But you know what? It also the, the rapport between Senator Grandma and Michael is so delicious like when he she's like i cooked him dinner i listened to him you know i just did everything for him i brought him home and and he's like yeah i got it, elizabeth you're a saint 
Yeah. Like I was like, oh, I love it. Yummy. I am my, my ex-mother-in-law, God rest her soul, she's passed on actually. And, and we had generally a very good relationship, but we certainly had over the years moments exactly like this. This was pulled from some real experience of how in-laws talk to you so often. It was so good because it felt so, so real. And then, you know, I think for everyone, they're like your Achilles heel because there's someone who you don't want to hurt your spouse or the memory of your spouse or your kids or anything by getting into some sort of argument with them. But at the same time, they get information from your spouse. Probably they know more about you than you wish they really did or whatever. And they just have ways of being able to say things that you're like, ooh. (laughs) If we're going to start examining Michael and Robin's relationship to the extent that it impacts some aspect of this show, whether his relationship with Lee, whether or not there was an affair, whether or not it, it fuels grandma senators ire for him. How important is it the fact that he never saw that batch of final pictures that Robin took? Did that strike you as weird that he hadn't seen them? It did strike me as weird for a couple of reasons, because she was taking photographs at the location that she likely was killed. Now, we don't know exactly the details. They did reveal that that's why she was down there, because we didn't really know, like, why was she hanging out? She in was the... always in the lower ninth taking pictures, because so, they look like Eritrea. Totally helpful to hear that information and get that backstory of what she was even doing there. But it seems to me that in a murder situation, that her camera and, and pictures she may have taken on it would be really important to any amount of an investigation. What it said to me, it was a red flag that very little investigating really went on. That they never developed the film, that that it was still in the camera? What is the likelihood that the person who did it was on the film? Pretty high. Right. You know? And so I'm like thinking if she was taking pictures of her surroundings and stuff like that, there's a fair shot. She has a suspect on the film. When Nancy asked to take to hang on to the pictures herself to like look at them, I was like thinking, what is she going to see? I started wondering if in that stack of pictures were going to be Adam's uh, selfies of his mutilated body. Oh, good call. All mixed in. And the crime scene, right? Because presumably, yeah. I mean, I got the impression it was the same roll of film because he had pulled out just the first pictures that he had just developed. And which we don't really know because the conversation kind of got away from it. it. So we, we don't know how much Nancy actually went through those photos yet. So something to definitely but keep I think she on. has them. At last look, she yeah. has them in her possession. The, the only significant time Lee was like not rocked back on her heels was talking about the case, talking about how Kofi was tortured and killed. And she says, you know, I can smell the fear in the system and I can work with the fear. If I'm Michael, that's making me worry that <laughs> this this woman who I'm now beginning a relationship with is going to be coming at me without realizing she's coming at me and after me. So I think also something that we need to put a pin in, like... I feel like that's the theme across the board. Everyone thinks that they're digging for for one reason, not to even have any understanding of who they're going to actually take down in the process. Because if you look around that table, at the end of the day, no person sitting there wants to take Adam down. You know, anyone, you know, there's people there who might have suspicions about Michael and maybe he's not the best guy in the whole wide world. But nobody's sitting there thinking, oh, let's try to get Adam, you know, and they don't realize that the more they dig at Michael's story, They're only just pointing the finger at Adam. Something tells me, though, by the time all is said and done, this is going to be like a Watergate situation where the cover up was worse than the crime. 
Hell yes. Which feels impossible because, you know, a person died at the scene there and that was a horrific motorcycle accident. But you're right. A, a completely innocent person's also now dead because of this. So 100% right. Have, yeah. We've gone tit for tat, at least on murder. And that's just where we're started at. You know, we still have six hours left in the show. Who, who's to say that grandma senator doesn't get a bug in her throat or turn out she's allergic to peanut butter when it's served to her on a sandwich? <laughs> I hope not. I hope not too, but I like Senator Grumma. But you have to you have to think that Michael's in for a penny, in for a pound, and if he's committed to covering this up, how far do you go? Right? That's the that's the thesis of the show. How far do you go to protect your child and now also protect yourself? I don't think Michael's done burying bodies yet, uh, either figuratively or literally. By the way. The bloody rag that Jingo uncovers oh that finally comes God. out, Chekhov's bloody rag. He doesn't give an explanation on that. And Nancy even goes, is that blood? Yeah, I mean, it's clearly <laughs> a bloody rag. And he stops and he gives this other, it's like watching a magician do some sleight of hand. He stops yeah. with a bloody rag in his hand and says, well, listen, you know, we haven't been truthful. We've been really inward uh, since the anniversary kind of thing. You never address why you have a fucking bloody rag in your hand, unless I missed Mm-mm. it. He never nope. actually says it gives a reason why, because then him and Adam go outside to argue. After the fact, he's just inside washing dishes with Grandma Senator. So, psh- I don't know how he actually got out of that. Like like passing out to avoid having to answer a question kind of thing. Yes, yes, you know, look over it. here. Pay attention not to the bloody rag inside <laughs> my hand, you know. Oh my god, go burn that bloody rag for God's sake. Burn it. Also, don't pull out a thing you don't know what your dog is pulling at and then hold I it up know. like you're presenting the child, you know, like in the in the nativity scene. <laughs> it could be underwear, it could be anything. Like why would you be like, What the hell is under here could that have he been wants? These so panties. Bad? You don't know. I know. Just as soon as he is the dog is outside, the problem is nullified. Move on. I decide what the truth is. What did you think of Michael's defense to Adam when Adam finally says the thing that has been being hinted at. The thing that's been rubbing him raw is the feeling that Michael is controlling the situation without even stopping to ask Adam if he's okay with it. And Michael doesn't hide it. Michael says, yeah, yeah, that's how it is. I'm the dad. I'm the parent. I am what the truth is. I say what the truth is. How did that sit with you as far as storytelling goes and just as a justification for everything he's doing? I think it's true. I think that that we do it every single day with our kids. You know, I mean, we're around Christmas time now. Families decide, you know, is this the year we're going to talk about Santa, not talk about Santa? You know, like this is the type of stuff that, yeah, we decide what's true. And we tell our kids what's true on the regular every day. We determine the truth for them. Yeah, I think this is just on like such a huge accelerated level that it seems, you know, maybe more clutch your pearls. But the reality is we do it every day. Uh, We actually have the clip here because I pulled it. So let's listen to it real quick. You want to know the truth? A gang member stole our car and was involved in a hit and run and killed a boy. That gang member was tortured by the police. He pled guilty and went to jail. And he died in jail. I am your father. I am being your father. It's 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 a little frustrating, but also smacks of realism that Michael and Adam keep banging heads on this adam feeling like he's not being heard that his father's not paying attention to the things that adam thinks are important 
Kofi, the fact that Adam's not having consequences for what happened, the fact that Kofi's dead now, that torture was now involved. He heard the word torture. I think that was a real breaking point for Adam um, yeah. at the dinner, listening to that. The way he, the way he makes his father say his name, you know, at the dinner table. What was his name, Dad? Yes, you know? I know. I mean, <laughs> that's that's as angry as that we've maybe seen Adam, and without him ever actually raising his voice or screaming at all. I have to say, as a parent, I don't know how much more of that poking I could take before I did absolutely look him in the eye and say, what is it that you want to happen? What is it that you want to happen? And whatever the fuck he said, like, it'd be like, do you need me to ground you? Do you want me to say you have to stay in the apartment for the next three months or something? Do you want me to take Django away and give him to another family? Like, what level of punishment do you need to satisfy your aching need for consequences? I, I would go there. Like, as a parent, I'm just saying, I would go there. I'd be like, let's just get down to brass tacks here, fella. What is it you want from me? And I'll beat your ass if that's what you need. I don't think that's a horrible idea. I think Adam is asking for that a little bit. Adam wants consequences. Everything Adam has done since this happened has been Adam looking to have consequences for But would thing. it ever be enough, Mike? Like, no, seriously, of course even not. if you could get this guy not. to say, okay, yeah, I need punishment. Like, what are we supposed to do? Like, and that's kind of the point, though, is like you'd have to almost have the kid go through that exercise of being like, do you feel better yet? Do you feel better yet? No. And after finally they just get tired, you're like, see, there's nothing I can do that's going to make you feel better. So you're just going to have to trust me. It's just going to be time. But sometimes that exercise is worth it. Even though you I know agree. what even though, even though you know what the answer is, Michael is just skipping to the end. And this is where he's banging heads. You know, Adam feels like he's not being heard and not having consequences. Michael is trying to just skip to the end of I know how this plays out. In, until you're dead by the hand of Jimmy Baxter and his family, you're never going to get the thing that makes you feel better. So just listen to me. I am your father, he says. And it's a powerful statement to say, and Jimmy says the same exact thing to yeah. Fia. He says, mm -hmm. he says it with a much louder and with a, <laughs> with a couple of fucks in there. You're, I'm giving you a leash a little bit. We can be pals. We can joke about. But at, we're going to reach a point where the actual answer is, I'm your fucking father. Do what I fucking say. In both of the cases, the teenagers are like begging for this like esoteric conversation that is really just like about morals and ethics and God real and stuff like that. And it's like, you you know, I understand you want to have that, but let's just like cut to the chase and like let you know, we're going to actually live out the values of this house set by, you know, your parents. The Let, end. Let's get into the Baxters and Fia is, is Rocco in heaven. What oh, a out of left field com conversation to have. <sighs> but the real benefit of it is for her to leave the room. The idea that she's questioning everything and Gina to turn to Jimmy and say she's turning away from God and she's killing me. That's the most Italian grandmother fucking shit I have heard in 20 years, Caroline. <laughs> she, she's killing me by turning away from God. And Jimmy is fucking Scottish. He's not even Italian, but God damn it if Gina's not playing that card like a like an old grandma. What did you think of the whole part where she absolutely owns it and says, yeah, I go behind your back. I totally pull strings. I talk to the guys. I tell them what's what. Yeah, I do that. I do that because you don't even know what you want. Like, what? Yeah, this is the scene that we played at the beginning of this episode. This whole scene was fantastic and it was part of Gina's overall 
plan, I think, in this episode is to needle Jimmy, to ride him, to keep poking at him, to make him act. She knows she is lighting a fuse, but she's not going to be satisfied until she sees that goddamn fuse explode. She knows enough about who Jimmy Baxter actually is when pushed far enough that it's going to be like a nuclear bomb going off in the city of New Orleans. And she spends this entire episode needling him. The, the you know, he says, you talk to Frankie behind my back too. And she says, of course I do. I, you know, we, we need to help you see your mind. But then she says, the city is waiting. What is Jimmy Baxter going to do? I love that line because what is Jimmy Baxter going to do? We've all been waiting for it since they got, since they left the courtroom when Kofi pleaded guilty and they came up with this idea that desire hit them in retaliation for Carlo. We've been waiting for what is Jimmy Baxter going to do it after the Fia thing. And she's turning away from God. She's killing me. She says, you do nothing. You bought a motorcycle. It killed him. You do nothing. Fia is turning away from God and killing me. You don't speak to her. You do nothing. Way to hit a guy who's probably very prideful where it hurts. I mean, she's kicking him right in his penis. Man, I thought the worst, the absolute worst was when she goes, why don't you buy her a motorcycle? Holy shit. Yeah. I like fell off the bed. Like, I was like, no. I mean, you know, I'm a woman in this world and I can do my fair share of needling when needed. Let me just tell you, I would have my coat on and my purse and keys in hand because I best bolt if I'm going to say some line like that. I am shocked at his self-control. Here's what I love about this relationship. It's a lived-in relationship that we are, we the audience are dropping into in the middle of it. We're dropping into it in the time of great heightened anxiety and worry and anger and grief amongst the Baxters. And I really like it because we we are worried about what Jimmy's going to do. We see him bubbling up. We see the fury inside him. He had just exploded. He had gone from having fun about the caspacho and then him and Fia cracking up in the laughter. I love that scene. That was, yeah. I was like, oh my God, that's fantastic. You know, like he, he was being so deadpan just to get Gina to get up and go about the thing. And, and then Fia catches on that he's laughing and he's talking about his Scottish heritage and how he's learned some stuff and they're joking and, and Fia, Fia kind of rides him back because she's feeling, oh, I got jokey dad tonight. This is jokey dad. I can push at him a little bit about you're just being a mouthpiece for Ma about the confirmation and he says to her he says just decide to believe like he doesn't even give a shit if she really believes just say you do just make peace so your mother stops writing my jock you know uh, let alone yours like just make peace and she still she pushes it one too far and this is the difference between being a daughter and being the wife of the angry mobster gina knows how to push it and push it and push it and not get hit in the face Fia pushes it one too far and she gets the screaming of her life. The just, you know, just do what I fucking say explosion. You know, that's the difference, right? Fia doesn't know the line just yet. I don't think any teenage girl knows the line just yet. And I think that most successful wives do, in fact, find the line and uh, manage Trial and error. Yeah. Trial and error. Like, so what exactly do I say? Do I talk about his mom? Is he acting a lot like his dad? What is the thing that I need to say that's going to ruffle his feathers just enough to go and do something that I want him to do? What is it I have to say? Yeah, it's it's like she asked the question. The city is waiting. What is Jimmy Baxter going to do? And then spent the entire episode trying to force him to an answer. We, we started off this episode talking about how the most effective mafia guys 
you know, do most of their work behind the scenes. But every now and then you got to put on a show, right? Sometimes you have to hit a rival boss in the street outside of a restaurant where lots of people see it. Sometimes you have to show flash to make people remember who, you know, who's the big guy. She's needling him for that kind of response here. When he goes to the bathroom and he's like grabbing at his face, you can I thought see- he was going to punch that mirror so I much. thought for sure he was going <laughs> to punch that mirror, but I'm happy he did it. Me too. He has more self-control than I thought. He has a tremendous amount of self-control, which makes you appreciate how much more of a monster he is because he doesn't lose control even though he wants to. He doesn't punch the mirror even though you know he wants to. He doesn't hit Gina even though he wants to a little bit. No. We see him talking to Frankie. He probably wants to a lot. (laughs) We we see him. I don't want to put abuser on him. He's already got enough issues. We see him... In the bathroom, he composes himself. He keeps self-control. We cut to him whispering in Frankie's ears and then staring at Gina, who's up on the balcony. They're getting ready to leave the restaurant just with, like, dead eyes. Like, are you happy now? Now Mm -hmm. you're going to see the answer. You wanted to know what Jimmy Baxter's going to do? Well, I've put into motion what Jimmy Baxter's going to do. See, and I'm so reading that situation like she is the boss. You know, Jimmy's her Frankie. You know, he just he just downlined it to the next guy, you know, especially the scene, the visual of them standing on that balcony. He's not standing behind her with his arms wrapped around her. She's standing behind him with her arms wrapped around him like she's the boss. I think she's the boss of him because she knows how to get him to dance to the tune she wants the tune to be danced to. I think he is the boss of the business, though. We've seen nothing that shows that he's the boss of anything. We've only seen that she talks behind his back and directs his goons where to go. And she works him like a marionette puppet. And then... He goes on. For sure. But remember, she's not the one who said, go blow up the house. Go find Kofi's house, which she knew where it was. She knew who Kofi Jones was. She could have given that hit order if she had the power. But Jimmy does it, though. Is that power that he's the one that goes and tells Frankie? The story will be reported that Jimmy Baxter put a hit out on Desire by blowing up the house of Kofi Jones's family. Not that Gina Baxter did it. How smart is that? (laughs) Right. But remember, uh, Michael Desiato didn't tell Adam, you killed Gina Baxter's son. No, he says you killed Jimmy Baxter's son. So she's the boss of him. But optically, he's the boss of the crime family, though. But the boss of the boss is still the boss, right? Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. But I, I think it was clear last week, though, that she was the boss, though. It's amazing. I had no idea. I thought she acted alone on the little prison thing was just like a one off. I didn't I really didn't think she was going to keep going with like all of the moves. I thought he was going to be a lot more vengeful from himself. Like he wasn't going to go do that. He wasn't. He's pushing. grieving. This is the point I was trying to make in last week's episode. When he comes up behind her with the with the corrections officers and he's like, hey, you've got mothers, you've got mothers. He just wants to be grief stricken he doesn't want to be worried about going to war right now that's not what his his move is i want to i want to just be sad and i want to i want to i want carlo to finish out a sentence and not fucking kill people so he can come home you know jimmy just wants his family together gina's got the bloodlust on her and that's how she wants to she wants to grieve is by you know having this this bloodlust revenge thing play out and this is this is where you should have an idea of what Gina is capable of. On top of all the scenes with her in it, at the top of the, the episode, 
when Jimmy grabs Carlo's head and says, I was taking care of it. And Carlo, mm-hmm. the son, says, Ma doesn't think you were. That's not what mom says. <laughs> that, that I mean, Gina doesn't even share with Jimmy that she was going to have Kofi killed. It's one thing to whisper in his ear, into Carlo's ear and send him on his way. But no point, apparently, in the next 24 hours in some pillow talk, Gina say to Jimmy, by the way, I told Carlo to go put a hit out on the kid who killed Rocco. That's important to note. If you want a proof of the power in the family is that not only can she do those moves, she can do those moves without actually telling him what she's done. Jimmy. Yeah. Right. He just has to live with the consequences of what she's done. That's amazing. One, were you shocked at the explosion? I mean, that's a that's a big fucking explosion. When they're out on the balcony looking off into the distance, uh, it almost looked like they were looking at the fireball or trying to see if they could see the fireball in the sky. Like that was the metaphor for me was that they were looking off into oh, the yeah. distance to see if they could see the proof of of what is Jimmy Baxter going to do. Absolutely. I think that they were watching it. I was trying to figure out exactly like I knew that they were at a restaurant and I was trying to figure out what the building was at the end of the block to try to get a sense of exactly where they were in the city compared to where we know where Kofi's house was. I was really trying to figure it out. I couldn't I can't figure out yet. So if someone who's listening knows what that building is at the end of the street. They're on the balcony of the restaurant up above. I'm so curious as to like, I'm sure it's right. I'm sure you probably could see it. There's not big skyscrapers, so you could see it. I think that takes us to the end of this episode. So I'm curious because I haven't watched episode five yet. We, it's sitting in screeners. I've been resisting it until we record this episode because I didn't want to be spoiled. Give me one prediction. Give me one question you want answered for an upcoming episode. One prediction is that Senator Grandma is a tenacious, clever dog with a bone on this. Now that she has her teeth into the idea that Nancy Costello is still pursuing any amount of investigation for Robin, she is absolutely going to just go for it. And I'm I'm really excited for that because I really do love Margot Martindale and I just think she's just going to knock it out of the park. So that's my prediction. I think I will be interested to see if we continue down the path of finding those other witnesses. Like we know that Michael took the picture of the of the license plate of the driver that was behind Adam. So I'm curious if he's going to continue down some sort of hit list of making sure that other people can't finger Adam in the area. So I'm curious, since we had that little nugget that he really did take that that license plate, it implied that he was going to continue to try to find anyone else who possibly could know anything else. So those are, I think, my two. How about you? My prediction is that Adam is going to start a relationship with Fia, either a friendship or begin to romance her. And that is going to put him and Michael and the Desiados squarely into the crosshairs of the Baxter family. Whereas of right now, they're completely invisible. The Baxters are completely fine and sold on the fact that this was a desire gang affiliated hit on their son. And that is who their enemy is. The idea that the ba- that the Desiados, uh, if they know who Michael Desiado is, it's only by reputation. They're completely invisible to them right now. Adam is completely invisible to that family right now, and he is going to put themselves. He's going to put him and his father on their radar by beginning a relationship with Fee uh, as he continues this this penance tour for consequences. Um, that's my prediction. My question for me is I'm going to stick like I want to know more about Lee. I want to know. I really am curious what makes her tick. And I think whatever it is, the thing in the background that we don't know yet that we've had two hints at now 
is is a is a a Rosetta Stone to understanding who Lee is and what her motivations are and why she is going to be driven. As I predict, she's going to be driven to to get to the bottom of justice for Kofi's death. I want to know what that thing is. I think that those are fantastic questions, and I'm so looking forward to. We're going to be at the halfway point, right at episode five next week, and so we should be at like a real serious tipping point in terms of speed and i already feel like this roller coaster is doing that like click 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 fart and it has just been getting faster and faster and faster and i'm starting to see like that tip over point where your stomach gets like extra freaked the curve out of the earth right the curve yes. the curve of the <laughs> of the roller coaster is in sight yes and my belly is like starting to get very nervous for our whole crew i am kind of shocked that that django rag did come to light in this episode because I was expecting it to be a further down the road. So now I feel like I have no clues that are like dangling around. The car's destroyed. The Django rag is uncovered. I'm kind of like, what do we have laying around? The photographs for sure. Is there for any sure. other evidence? And all our witnesses. Are there any other evidence things? The, the inhaler, inhaler. The inhaler. Yeah, still we still around. got that sitting out there. I think I, here's the thing. I think most of the evidence that is still hanging around, most of the loose threads that are hanging around at this point, really are the ones only of Adam and Michael's making. Nice. Look at you. I love that creating more chaos than they are than they are smoothing over huh yeah it's it's the the cover-up is worse than the crime syndrome i think i think we are speeding towards that that idea this is caroline and this is mike thanks for listening to tales from yaya's the your honor podcast don't forget to head to apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate review and subscribe we hope you subscribe to this and all of our podcasts so you never miss an episode thanks for listening Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.